So have you ever been woken up in the morning disturbed? Whether, whether it was something that was on your mind or whether it was a terrible dream that you had, have you ever woken up in this state of just like being disturbed, like you, you didn't feel okay? Recently, this, this past week, I actually had a, like a wild dream where in my dream, ready? I'm going to interpret my own dream. No, 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 I'm not. In my dream, my wife and I, we were unloading our kids, and they, they got inside, and we were unloading our car, and all of a sudden, we look up in the sky, and there's these giant, you know, like the, the giant Air Force jets? Not, not the fighter jets, but like the cargo jets? Like, two of them are falling out of the sky, and then we look to our right, and there's tons falling out of the sky, and we're like, oh my goodness, we're under attack, and it was just a dream, but it was, it was terrifying. I was disturbed when I woke up. I told my half-asleep wife the dream because I was so disturbed. I was like, no, I have to tell it to you right now, and ultimately, that dream, well, hopefully, means nothing, <laughs> But as we get into our passage tonight, we're going we're gonna to look at Pharaoh, who also has a couple dreams that leave him disturbed. But what we're going to see is that these are not just mere nightmares, but that they are the gracious heralds of God that are trying to tell Pharaoh of what it is, what is to come that God will use these dreams by means to exalt his servant Joseph and to bring God's gracious salvation to the world of that day. That God is going to use these dreams to begin to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through his seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Picking up in Genesis chapter 41, verse 1, it says, And then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold... Seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second dream. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it was a dream. So we see that Pharaoh has these two dreams, and sometimes we're familiarity breeds contempt. Most of us, how many of you have heard? this story of Pharaoh and his dreams. Raise your hand. Participation, good job. All right, almost all of us, if not all of us, have read, have heard, have even seen film adaptations of this passage. 
And I don't know about you, but for the most part, I tend to look at these dreams and I'm like, what's the big deal? Why is he so disturbed? But then, if you actually pay attention to what the dream is, it's horrifying. Who's seen a cow? I know, participation. I'm sorry, I'm not going to make you raise your hand all night. Okay, right? What do cows eat? Grass. Cows are herbivores. And see, these seven cows, they come up out of the river. They're feeding on the grass. Oh, this is a beautiful sight. The young adults and I, we went and did a hike, and we walked through a cow pasture. It's wonderful. It's so fun. Cows are beautiful creatures of God. You want to go pet them. And so here's these cows, they're feeding, and then all of a sudden, seven ugly, sick, thin, look like they're going to fall over and die cows, come up out of the river. And not only that, you're like, oh man, poor cows, what's wrong? Somebody get a vet. But then all of a sudden, they come up over to the, the seven healthy cows, and what do they do? They eat them. They're not grassy. They start chewing and eating and swallowing the healthy cows. That's a horror movie. That's disgusting. Of course you would be disturbed. This is horrifying. And the grain one, I don't get as much, but similar, right? Ooh, look at that grain. I just want to pluck that grain, rub it in my hands, eat it, right? And then all of a sudden, this sickly, blighted grain swallows up the good grain and nothing's left. And so Pharaoh is disturbed by this dream. He's so disturbed that he calls for all the magicians and the wise men in his kingdom. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. See, you and I, when we have a bad dream, it might follow us throughout the day. We'll shake it off. We try and deal with it. When Pharaoh has a dream, the whole kingdom stops. And he gathers all his wise men. He gathers all his magicians. He tells them this dream, and nobody is able to interpret it. And so his, his desperation starts to rise. He's still troubled. This is no light matter for him. And that in itself is God's grace because God did not allow Pharaoh to move away from this dream. And so Pharaoh begins to be desperate. And at this time, his cupbearer remembers something. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, I remember my faults this day. Not normally a good way to start, but there you go. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us. So it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. So 
Pharaoh, in his desperation, as he's looking everywhere for an interpretation to his dream, his butler remembers, finally, after two years, what's the last thing that Joseph said to the butler? Remember me. And then all of a sudden, the chief butler, he was back in power, and he's like, eh, I'll give it a week. I don't want to ask for favors right now. And then all of a sudden, he forgets. And it's two years later, and now it just so happens, or we should say, by God's providence. It wasn't just, it wasn't just that the chief butler was forgetful, because imagine if Joseph had been freed, what would have happened to Egypt? What would have happened to the world? No, the butler may have forgotten about Joseph, but God did not. God had Joseph exactly where he wanted him. And he was not left alone there. God purposefully had him there. He was waiting. He had Joseph waiting for the day that he was going to use him. And so what was the butler's fault was God's favor. Amen? And so what we see now in verse 14 is Pharaoh calls for Joseph. He hears of this dream interpreter and calls him before him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothes, and came to Pharaoh. Because it wouldn't be appropriate for, for Joseph to come before Pharaoh uh, looking like a prisoner, which he was. He was probably all scraggly. Who knows the last time he got to shave? He probably had kind of raggedy clothes. So he was going to be brought before Pharaoh, who's the king of the land, and so he needs to look presentable. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. Pharaoh has heard of Joseph's reputation, and he's expecting that Joseph will be able to do what no one else in his kingdom has been able to do. But we're going to see some things about Joseph's character and what God has been doing in the life of Joseph for the last 13 years. And we're going to see that Joseph is no longer the proud 17-year-old who was boasting about his own dreams, but that God has made him humble and reverent and wise by his spirit. And so Pharaoh asks Joseph, I've heard that you know how to interpret a dream. Nobody else is able to, but I've heard that you can do it. And the first thing that Joseph says, so Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. Whew. That's not a good way to start. The king of all the land took you out of prison so that you could interpret the dream. And what does Joseph say? He says, no, it's not in me. But see, here we see the humility of Joseph. He recognizes his dependence on God and his inability apart from the grace of God to do this task. He reiterates again what he said in Genesis chapter 40, which we looked at last week, that 
interpretations belong to God. The interpretation is not Joseph's. It's not his ability. It is God's ability through him. And so Joseph humbly recognizes his place and his need for his God. Andrew Murray said, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. Humility is the recognition that you are not God and that you are dependent upon your creator. And here, Joseph had a long time to learn this lesson. We first look at Joseph and he's boasting. He's got this robe from his father. He is, he's declared the favorite. It's no secret. And he starts having these dreams of grandeur. Everybody's going to serve me. And what happens to him? He's thrown in a pit by his brothers. Yeah, we're going to serve you? Sure, we'll serve you. And they threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. Then he, he rises up into power in his master's house, only to be wrongly accused and once again thrown into a pit. He's thrown into the dungeon. And even there, as he serves God, he's risen up so that he, he's the, basically the ruler over the prison. But here, time and time again, Joseph is humbled by God. He's taught humility. You're going to be ruler over everyone? They're going to bow down to you? The only way that that is going to happen is if he first learns humility. Jesus tells us that the Gentiles, the, the, the people who are not a part of his kingdom, they lord rulership over one another. Yet it shall not be so among you. But anyone who desires to be first will be last. Anybody who desires to, to rule is going to be the servant of all. And Jesus himself has shown us the way. Before he was crucified, he took up a towel and washed his disciples' feet. He took the place of the lowest servant. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, have you seen what I've done? Do you understand it? If I, your master, have washed your feet, so you ought to wash each other's feet. Humility is the only right place for a creature and especially a Christian. There is no room for us to be exalting ourselves. There is no room for us to be exalting anyone but the name of Jesus. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so Joseph gets it right. It is not in me. It's not in his ability. And then next, he points to his reverence toward God it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. God is the one 
God is the one who is going to get glory. And we're going to hear that time and time again. Even as Joseph begins to interpret the dream, he keeps pointing it back to God. God has shown you what's going to happen. God has given you this dream. God is trying to tell you what is to come. Because God is the only one who deserves all the glory. This world, we see people, even we get involved in this, where we try to take the glory. We try to glorify ourselves. Or, I'm a part of this group. I'm a part of that group. I'm doing this thing. Look at me. Think about class reunions. What's really the point of class reunions? Is it so that you can go and catch up with people you love? Hopefully, that's the reason why you would go. But let's be honest. We're always thinking, oh, what am I going to have to say? You know, if you're working the dead-end job and you're going to the class reunion, all of a sudden you feel like, oh, man, I can't go to that. What am I going to tell my classmates? Well, you know what you tell your classmates? You're in Christ. That you are loved by God. That you have been born again. That God has forgiven you. And that forgiveness is offered to even the CEO who comes to the class reunion. God is no respecter of persons. And your most prized identity is in Christ. That is what defines you. And so, let us not be like the world who tries to store up glory for themselves, tries to exalt themselves. No, let's lift high the name of Jesus because his name is the only name that is worthy to be lifted high. And so, Joseph begins to interpret this dream by God's grace. So Pharaoh... Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly, by the way, this is just a recap, but we're going to, this time, we're going to get into it. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt. Such ugliness as I have not seen in the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk full and good, then behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. So, the first part of the interpretation is that it's not really two dreams, it's one. That they are mirror images of each other. Seven good cows, seven good grains. Seven ugly cows, seven ugly grain. The ugly cows eat up the good cows. The ugly grain eats up the good grain, however that happens. And so, the dreams are one, and God is showing Pharaoh what he's about to do. So Joseph is telling Pharaoh, these are prophetic dreams. This is not trying to tell you something about right now. This is something telling you about the future. 
This isn't something telling you something about you, Pharaoh. No, this is telling you something about what's going to happen. And so, verse 26, wait, yeah. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. I don't know about you, but I, it seems like Joseph's getting excited. He's kind of like repeating himself. He's like, oh, man, the dreams are one. I don't know what he, I, you got to use your imagination. Oh, God's showing you what he's going to do. The dreams are one. The seven good cows, the seven good grain. Oh, man, there's seven years. I just imagine like Pastor Brian from Haiti. Oh, man, oh, buddy. No, that's probably not it. Sorry about that image. Um, And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. And so, the seven ugly cows, the seven ugly blighted grain, there's seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. See, he keeps bringing it back to God. God is showing you. God is showing you. God is showing you. And this just goes to show the graciousness of God, the hidden hand of God's providence through this whole thing. God got Joseph into Egypt, into a pit to meet a cupbearer so that one day that cupbearer might remember that Joseph interpreted his dream so that God could show Pharaoh what he is about to do. Amen. Isn't that amazing? God's care and love, not only for the family of Israel, but for all the world. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So the seven good cows are seven years of plenty. The first seven years are going to be an abundant year after year bumper crops. And then it's going to be followed by year after year of famine, so severe that you would never even remember the good years, which is why Pharaoh makes it a point to say, after the ugly, gaunt cows ate up the good cows, they looked just as ugly and gaunt because the famine is going to be so severe that it looks like there's always been a famine. That's how bad it's going to get. And so... Before we move on from this dream, a couple of things. The, the river that Pharaoh is standing next to, obviously, is the Nile River. The Nile is so associated with Egypt that it essentially represents Egypt. There's going to be this famine that comes to Egypt. The years of plenty come first, and then these years of famine. Uh, the grain that is blighted by the east wind... The wind that would come from the west would bring rain. Rain is good for crops. And so a west, 
a wind from the west would bring the rains, which would then cause the, the Nile to swell, and then the Nile would flood, and then they would basically make these little canals coming out from the Nile that would water their crops. But an east wind would drive away the rain clouds, which would mean that there would be a drought, and a drought would then lead to a famine. And the east wind would also bring warm air, and the grain that did grow would get scorched, hence why the grain is blighted. So there's this drought that is going to come, which is going to lead to famine, years of famine, years of drought, which at times was common in Egypt. And so these seven years of drought and famine would cause the crops to fail, but not only do humans eat the crops, but the livestock eats the crops. And so the, the livestock also would have a famine, and then they would get sick and die. That's the idea. That's where all this imagery comes from. And so Joseph, by God's grace, interprets this dream, but he doesn't stop there. Because in verse 33, Joseph goes on, Now therefore... Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities." Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So now we see the wisdom of Joseph. He doesn't just know what's going to happen by God's grace, but he knows what to do. He didn't just interpret the dream. He was able to apply the dream. And he was able to know what to do with the dream. And the same grace that God gave to Joseph to interpret was the grace that gave him the wisdom. Now, oftentimes we find ourselves in places in life where we don't know what to do. We're confused. Situations arise and we're clamoring. We're, We're trying to figure out what on earth we should do. But God tells us in James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We serve a gracious and generous God. He is not withholding. He loves you and desires for you to know what you need to know when you need to know it. Sometimes we would like God to tell us what we need to know before we need to know it. But that is often not what God does. He gives us the information as we need it. The wisdom is in him, and we need to seek him for the wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 tells us that Christ is for us wisdom from God. There is no wisdom apart from God. There's a lot of people out there who, who are doing a lot of learning, and learning's good, to an extent, but wisdom alone comes from God. And if you lack wisdom, you need to be seeking your Father because He's generous 
with his wisdom. He's given it to us in Christ. So if you're confused, seek Christ. If you desire wisdom, seek Christ. If you feel like you've not gained that wisdom yet, guess what? Keep seeking Christ because God desires to give it to you. He gives it to you liberally. He's not stingy with his grace. Francis Schaeffer tells a story of his daughter going, and she's going to be riding the bus. And his daughter is asking her father about kind of God's grace and God's blessing and God's wisdom and trying to understand how these things work. I pray, but I'm not receiving. How does this work? And so he says to her, he says, when you're going to ride the bus, when does daddy give you the fare? When does daddy give you the money to pay for the bus? Before she gets on, before she needs it, right before she needs it. I know I would never give my children money. My kids are little, but even still, I would not give my children money for something that they needed to purchase weeks and years in advance. Why? Because they'll use it, use it, or they'll lose it. Either way, it won't be saved for what it's needed. It's safely kept with their father. And as they seek their father, they get it when they need it. And it's the same for wisdom. We need to continue to seek God, and as we need the wisdom, he grants it to us. Daily mercies, daily bread. He supplies every day. You can't go to him and ask for 10-year wisdom. No, daily wisdom. Give us this day our daily bread, amen? And so in this application, we see the wisdom that God has given Joseph. And Pharaoh is blown away by this wisdom. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? Joseph sees these seven years of plenty coming and he sees the seven years of famine coming and he recognizes if we don't prepare for the famine now, we won't be ready for it and the land will be cut off. See, we see Joseph's gracious care. We see the character of God pouring out through Joseph. He's representing his God very well. Joseph is a captive of Egypt. And yet, he has compassion on his captors. Does that not sound familiar? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus on the cross is praying for his crucifiers. And we see Joseph, who's been in Egypt wrongfully for 13 years, large some of those years as a slave, this last portion, at least two years as a prisoner. And he looks at Pharaoh, tells him the truth, and then tells him what to do with it. He doesn't, say, if, he, he doesn't say, now God has said, if you put me in charge and give me what I need, 
your land will be safe. No, he says, listen, you need to find a wise man, somebody who's going to be trustworthy, somebody who you're going to be able to trust with all of this food, and you need to start storing it up now so that everybody's going to have what they need later. And Pharaoh, after he hears this interpretation, after he hears this wisdom applied, he says, is there anybody else? Hey, servants, hey, butler, hey, new baker. Like, is there anybody who's got wisdom like this guy? And everybody's like, nah, this guy's it, right? Everybody's in agreement. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? What a good representation. Joseph is honoring his God in the way that he's living. And so we've seen this disturbing dream Pharaoh's chief butler was reminded of this wild interpreter in prison. And now what we see is God's grace being poured out. We're going to see how God's grace is poured out towards Joseph abundantly. We're going to see how God's grace is poured out toward Pharaoh and Egypt and all the peoples. And in this, we're also going to see how God is gracious still today toward us. And so, then Pharaoh, verse 39, said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paaniah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph, earlier that day, was in prison. And now God has exalted him to the second place in the most powerful nation of all the world. And oftentimes people will be like, in one day, Joseph went from the prison to the palace. And that's true. Technically it's true. But actually it's, it's 13 years as a slave in prison. Because like sometimes pastor be like, oh, in one day, prison to the palace. And it's, listen, yes, at that moment, it finally came to fruition. But that passes over 13 years of suffering. 13 years of questioning. What were those dreams? Like, why did I even have them? Like, they felt so important. They felt so meaningful at that time. And now it just feels like they were pointless. 
13 years of questioning, why did I say that? Why? Why did I have to? I could be home with my dad and my awful brothers. No. 13 years of suffering. And as Christians, oftentimes we, we want to pass over suffering. We want to skip the cross and get right to the resurrection. But Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried according to the scriptures. And Joseph spent 13 years as a slave and a prisoner in Egypt. Go ahead and turn with me to to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16 through 18, as we look to another man who is not foreign to suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God sees you in your suffering. God is with you in your suffering, and your suffering is not meaningless. It's one of the most beautiful and hopeful things about the gospel. There is not one meaningless moment of your life. God is with you, and he is working in you a more eternal weight of glory. Paul is able to look ahead at the glory that is with Christ, and he's able to look at that glory in faith, and he says, yeah, my suffering, momentary, light. And that can be hard to hear, but it's needful. Christian, your suffering is momentary. Your glory, eternal, because it's hidden with Christ in God. And even now, Colossians says, you're seated with him in heavenly places. Your outward man might look like it's suffering, but your inward man is being renewed day by day because right now you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He's ruling and reigning. He is in control. As Joseph was in prison, God was in control. As Joseph was a slave, God had a plan. And God has a plan for you and for your suffering. No matter how small or great, God will take your suffering and use it for his glory and your good. And that's a promise. Now, we may not see fully all of those implications this side of glory, but it is true. And God is even gracious enough to give, a, give us glimpses of how he is using our suffering even now. Because God does not waste a moment of your life. And God is using it to bring you closer and closer into the image of Christ. 
even our suffering is a moment. It's actually our suffering is not primarily ours, but it is Christ's. Because Paul tells us that we, are, we become partakers of his suffering. We enter into the fellowship of Christ's suffering. When Paul is going to persecute the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It's first and foremost his suffering. You can see a picture of this with, if you have children. If you're a parent and your child is suffering, they are truly suffering, but you are suffering with them. How much more a perfect God and Father is suffering with his children. And in that suffering, we are able to come close in a way that other times we are not. Do not waste your suffering. Seek him. Seek him. Draw near to him. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's not looking to push you away. He's not looking to push you away in your questions and your trials. He knows you don't understand, but he does. He's still good. He loves you. Come to him. He desires for you to be brought near in the fellowship of your sufferings with Christ. And these sufferings for Joseph were exactly the thing that God was going to use to prepare him to be in this place of leadership. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 and 6, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That he may exalt you in due time. For Joseph, that was after 13 years of slavery and prison. Some of us, we look at our lives and we feel like God is calling us to great things. Meanwhile, we don't see the great ways in which we can serve God right now. Joseph did not wait to serve. Joseph served excellently in Potiphar's house. Joseph served excellently in the prison. And we think that God's going to use me in a great way, but you don't serve your wife, or you don't serve your kids, or you're a terrible employee. God, it will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. How are you doing while you're hidden? Are you still serving the Lord with gladness? Are you still, are, are, you, are you following Jesus' command to serve without paying mind to who's watching? Are you generous now? Are you loving now? Are you kind now? Because if you look at the qualifications for a leader in a church, whether it's a, a deacon or an elder, you know what's so interesting about those qualities? They're pretty normal. It's just being a Christian. You know what the qualification of an elder is? Qualification is that you lead your household well. You're not greedy for money. You don't get drunk. 
You're not looking at other women. You love the Lord and you love his people. It's very ordinary. Do you desire that God would use you in greater ways? There is no small ways to serve the Lord. If, you're, if you've got like a five-year-old kid, you want to teach someday, and you've got your kid at home, start teaching them the Bible. Right? You've got a friend who will listen, share them the word. Right? You want to be an evangelist? Talk to your coworker. God is not going to raise you up to be Billy Graham if you won't talk to the person you've been sitting next to for the past 10 years, right? We, we keep looking, God, I know you're just going to use me in a great way as if there's a, not a great way to be used by God. Francis Schaeffer, once again, he's got a, a sermon that I read recently. No little people, no little places. That's the truth. There's no little people for you to serve. There's no, there's no little people in God's eyes. And there's no little places. Oh, I don't really, I mean, like, I don't really feel called to serve at home. Well, do you live there? Then you're called. Well, I don't really feel called to this job. Well, are you working there? Well, then right now you're called. And you're called to serve the Lord where you're at. And oftentimes we don't move closer in our walk with the Lord because we're resisting where God has us. Bloom where you're planted. God's hand of providence was where Joseph was. And Joseph bloomed where he was planted. And when it came time that he was going to be raised up, his character had already been raised to that place. God forbid that we should be put in a place that our character is not ready for. That's how ministers and people and business people are destroyed. Their skills grow quicker than their character. I'm thankful for the way that God has been slow to give me opportunities. I used to think, man, oh man, I should just like, I came to the young adults group and like the second night I'm like, oof, this group would be great if I was leading it. Rather than just being thankful I had, never, I had never experienced a group like that. It was amazing. Mike Melody was doing a great job, and all of a sudden, a couple nights in, I'm like, oof. But if I got a hold of this thing. And eventually I did. But it was, I don't know, five, six, seven years before that happened. And each of those years, God was using to prepare me for that place so that when it came, I, didn't, I wasn't proud, I was humbled. And I was asking God, are you sure? That is the attitude we need to have when coming to the Lord because it's always grace. It's never earned. Don't associate yourself with lofty things. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the only place for the Christian is a place of humility. The only rightful place for us. So back to Genesis chapter 41. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh 
and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. They start putting into action this plan. They don't look at the first plentiful year and be like, oh, this is going to last forever. No, they start immediately and they start preparing for the years of famine that are to come. Verse 50, not only is Egypt fruitful at this time, but Joseph finds his family being fruitful as well. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came from Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. God is so abundantly blessing Joseph at this time that he names his first son forgetting. Manasseh means forgetting because after all the blessing that God has given him, it's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this momentary light affliction is not to be compared with the eternal weight of glory. And this was the physical glory that Joseph was receiving, not the spiritual glory that we are promised. So Joseph looks at all the blessing. He's so thankful. And he's like, God, it's like you've made me forget all the bad years. Isn't that beautiful? God's bringing healing to his heart, once again preparing him for more of what's to come. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And Ephraim means fruitfulness. So the land is being, in the land of his affliction, he finds himself fruitful. And may we be found fruitful in the land of our affliction. So God has blessed Joseph, but not only that, God has blessed all of Egypt and all the land. Because it says in verse 53, then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So this famine is not just in Egypt, but it has spread to the whole region. All lands are affected by this famine, but in Egypt there's bread because God had Joseph in Egypt at the right time so that Egypt might be saved and that all the lands would be saved as well. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth and Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. God didn't just pour out his grace on Joseph, but he used Joseph to pour out his grace on all the land at that time. God's grace and love was not just toward his covenant people, but already is expanding the boundaries and is 
fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that in their seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And it's through Joseph that people are fed in a time of famine. And so we see God's love and grace for all of humanity, not just the Israelites. And this is all just shadows of God's fulfillment of his grace to all humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God uses Joseph as a shadow of the ultimate salvation that would be brought through Jesus Christ. We see through Joseph's suffering as a mirror dimly reflecting Christ, who was also sold for a meager sum, wrongly arrested, accused, and punished. We see in Joseph a reflection of Christ's humility because Jesus said that he only spoke that which he was given by the Father. We see in Joseph a reflection of, of Christ in that Pharaoh gives Joseph this name, Zaphnath Paaniah, which means God speaks and he lives, and Jesus himself is the living word of God that has been brought to us. And Joseph provided food for a hungry people, and Jesus himself has become for us the bread of life. God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves us, and his love is not limited to us, but goes out to all the world, just as God did not just save the Israelites, but through Joseph saved the world. God has sent his son, not just for us who are in this building, but there are people who have yet to bow the knee to Jesus, who God is drawing to himself. And it is our responsibility to bear the name of Jesus. We call ourselves Christians. And we are because we have been made new in Christ. But remember, you bear that name. You are reflecting that name. How are you carrying it? Are you carrying it in such a way that you would be drawing all men to Christ? Jesus said of himself that he would be lifted up and that all men would be drawn to him. Are you lifting up Christ still before the people who are around you? Are you representing Christ in the way that you talk, speak, pray, love, work? Because God's desire is that not only you would be saved, but that all men would be drawn to himself. God's salvation has not changed. His heart, his desire is that he would draw all people to himself. And we, as his people, should have the same desire. So, let Joseph be an example to us as a mirror reflecting Christ. As we look to Joseph, as we look to how God is gracious through Joseph, let us remember God's exceeding grace given to us in Jesus Christ. That he has, he has saved us, that he has, he has 
filled us, that he's satisfied our hunger and there's bread left over. Martin Luther once said that Christians are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. So, will you tell others where the silos are? In all the land, there was famine, but in Egypt, there was bread. In all this world, there's famine, but in Christ, there's bread. Jesus is our sustenance. He's given us all we need. And he's given us an abundance so that we might share. Amen.